Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Food Without Borders, a show about food, politics, and identity on heritageradionetwork.org. I am your host, Sari Kamen, and I'm coming to you live in the back of Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick. My guest today is Chef Lucas Sin. He is the chef of Junza Kitchen, a new generation restaurant in New Haven and New York City, serving northern Chinese bings and noodle bowls that seeks to update the narrative on the modern Chinese everyday food experience in the United States. Welcome to the show, Lucas. Thanks for having me. Or do you prefer Chef? Uh, no, Lucas. Lucas. No, chef definitely Sin. Lucas. Definitely Lucas. Yeah, okay. I'm too young for that. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Although your profession or your experience at this point yeah. certainly warrants it. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> too kind of you. <laughs> well, um, regardless, I'm very happy you're here mm-hmm. and you are, in fact, a chef. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's a compliment. <laughs> it's a fact. <laughs> it, it takes a while to get used to, to be honest. How long have you? How long has Jinza been open? Uh, Jinza's been open for almost three years. Almost okay. three years. Um, but I've been cooking since I was sixteen or so. I think safe to say. Um, you have a very interesting story about your first restaurant. Yeah. Your you opened your first restaurant in Hong Kong, which in is Hong where Kong. you grew up. Yes, yes. Um, so you opened your first restaurant at the age of sixteen in an abandoned newspaper factory. Right. That's crazy sounding. Pretty nuts. Is it as nuts Pretty as it nuts. sound? Uh, it was a lot of fun, I remember, uh, <laughs> mostly. It's like but most 16-year-olds are playing video games, and you're like, there's an abandoned newspaper well, factory. I'll open a restaurant. <laughs> when, I was, uh, when we got to building this restaurant, um, it, it wasn't just me. It was me and my friends also. Um, the, it was just the last summer. Um, we went to an international school in Hong Kong, so everybody was destined for college elsewhere. Um, most of us in the U.S. or in the U.K. or whatnot. And it got to a point where people were asking, "What, like, what are you going to do with this last summer in Hong Kong?" Um, and then my father told me that. Well, my father asked, "Oh, Lucas, you like to cook, don't you?" And I said, "Yeah, yeah, I guess I like to cook." Um, and then he said, "Why don't we just try opening a restaurant? Let's just do this this summer." And so uh, we knew somebody who knew somebody in this newspaper factory. And uh, he had a wine cellar and a semi-professional kitchen um, next to his um, little karaoke studio inside of the uh, abandoned newspaper factory. And he said, hey, this space is yours. You have to pay me this amount of money, rent it out. um, But you can cook in this kitchen and serve people. So we um, told a bunch of our teachers about it. We told a bunch of our friends about it. And then they would meet in a certain place in Hong Kong, we'd send a shuttle bus, they'd get on the bus, the bus would come to the factory, they'd unload themselves, and they'd sit down in this wine cellar, and then we'd serve them like 13 courses, um, we used to call it Hong Kong cuisine, the restaurant was called Bo Tai, um, Bo Tai which means a clay pot kid, 
I'm named after the first dish I ever learned how to make. Clay pot, clay pot kid? rice. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you, know how, you know how some, um, you know, like hip hop artists have like, you know, they, they like christen themselves with rap names. Yes. With some chefs, you know, Curious Cook or, or, or you know, Lucky Peach. Okay. Like, you, so you it was your it was your chef rapper name. It was like you're 16 years old. So you're the clay pot kid. Fair enough. Bojai as in like Bojai fan. Clay uh-huh. pot rice. That's that's a. Uh, um, yeah, so and that was our signature dish, actually, clay pot rice, pork belly, a little bit of taro, um, Chinese sausage, Chinese liver sausage. It was delicious. It sounds great. I love that Very your fun. dad was the one who was like the instigator yeah. behind all this. He, he um, my father's not a uh, chef, but he, in my opinion, is the best cook like on earth. Um, every morning we would wake up. And he would go to the fridge and he would like put a one single pot together of, you know, everything that was in the fridge, like chicken and vermicelli. And he would like make a stock and all these things and it would always be absolutely beautiful. Um, and he always joked that um, when, I mean, when we get to a certain age or rather when he gets to a certain age, we should open a restaurant together mm. called Ji Dai Beng, which in Cantonese is an army of brothers. So it's the older brother and the younger brother. Aww. He and I would like run this little like spot together. Yeah. So he's always wanted to be sort of a chef. I so he was like a little bit yeah. living vicariously through sort you, or just I, like I encouraging so. you yeah. to pursue his. Yeah, but he's just so pension. good at his real life job that I don't think he. What's his real up, life job? Um, he's in tech broadly. Okay. My grandmother wants to cook though. Um, my grandmother, um, not not in the sense of you know she she wasn't sort of a chef that people. Um, think of as a mm-hmm. chef today in the U.S. especially. She was a cook because that's what she needed to do. Um, she cooked for the people um, who served food to um, people at a mahjong parlor. Hmm. So she would make staff meal, in effect. And that was like her whole life, and her whole career. And early on, um, when I was in Hong Kong, my grandmother would tell me, you can do anything in your life. Like, Lucas, go ahead. Be good at school and do whatever you'd like, but please don't become a cook. Yeah, I mean, I was wondering about that. You know, it, it surprised me that you said your father was the one who was motivating you to become a chef or open a restaurant at such a young age because, you know, you often hear about parents, like Chinese mm-hmm. parents or different, right. you know, cultures like that um, sure. encourage their kids to go off and move to the United States and then become, like, a doctor or a lawyer. But I love that your dad right. was encouraging you to, like, follow your, your passion he, there. He taught me how to make a lot of the things. He, he, like, taught me a lot of the principles of how to behave in the kitchen how to think about food. So I think he's absolutely supportive in that sense. So he was really the, the cook in your family growing up? Everyone in my sort of um, family cooks quite a bit. Mm. My sister uh, is a great baker. Um, my mother hated cooking, but then she got very, very good at it. She <laughs> like, cooked for us all the time. Um, and she'd like invent dishes. And she was the first person to teach me the important principle of delicious plus delicious equals delicious. <laughs> is that a theorem? You know, it, it is. Uh, it, to be honest, it, um, nine, half the time it's probably not true. Um, but when it is true, it's like extra true. Like um, a good example is uh, ketchup fried rice. Oh. You know, just like there's no recipe book that says you should you should put this liquidy ketchup sugary substance in your fried rice. But if this is good and that's good, you match it together. It gets really good. Yeah, it's like taking like a neutral base and yeah. adding something kind of right. like sugary and yeah. salty. It's I, a, guess. I mean, it's an important principle, and this, that's something that I like to teach a lot of the cooks um, at Junza when we make staff lunch. Is you should be able to open a fridge and see what you have available and be able to make something good out of it. And that practice of making staff lunch is very much like my mother's practice of making food for her kids when they come back from school. 
It sounds like the way that your father cooked too. I mean, the way you right, described right. it, like every day he just created like a delicious, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, like one pot dish out of everything that was kind of like sitting around or Absolutely. left over. Yeah, and that probably informed a lot of the way I started cooking as well. I mean, if you're 16 years old, you barely have any um, professional kitchen experience, and you're opening a restaurant, um, you're going to be a little reckless about your menu designer you know you're cooking for sure yeah um you're slamming things together and hoping things work and then refining them from there and there's a lot of trial and error but i think that sort of like pop-up-y recklessness really carried me through the early sort of years of my cooking um when i went to school um here in the u.s uh, i ran a little pop-up or a series of restaurants rather at my dorm as well so in my basement, um, we could seat maybe like 30 people and five of them would be on a ping pong table. <laughs> and then we had this like little electrical stove and this stuff and then we um, would run restaurants every weekend, sort of like, you know, sort of illegally. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> we got a call from the um, uh, New Haven Health Department once that said, so on this news uh, to the university and said, uh, um, there's this kid, Lucas Sin, and he's in the center he's in the centerfold and he's cooking for 200 people every weekend <laughs> uh you talk about this um but yeah so that so always it's always about me and my friends just me teaching other people how to hold three plates at once teaching people how to talk about wine teaching people how to like talk about tea if they don't want to talk about wine to like bring some sort of like community of making food to wherever we were i think that's a lot of the start of how we Yes, but I also sort of get the impression that something that interests you about food is like the illicit quality of like <laughs> opening a restaurant in like a really unconventional I suppose, I suppose so, yeah. space. Like you clearly haven't pursued yeah. it in like a linear way at all where you were like, okay, I'm going to go to yeah. cooking school. I'm going right, to go right, right. to, you know, open a restaurant. Like you were like, how can I do like the weirdest, most like unconventional <laughs> thing? Perhaps, no, it's just given the <laughs> confines of the circumstances, uh, given the circumstances, you know, you're, you're suddenly before you know it, you're going to a liberal arts school in, uh, in, in the U.S. and you kind of want to cook. Yeah. So you tell one of your friends, hey, you know, I used to like, run this place in Hong Kong when I was a kid, um, you know. A couple months ago. Right, right. When I was a kid <laughs> yeah. last year. <laughs> yeah, last year. I mean, I said, oh, like, if, if you've done it before, like, well, just do it now. Like, let's do it right now. And um, the first pop-up that we did um, under Why Pop-Up, which is what we called the pop-up organization, was uh, instant noodles. So you could bring your own instant noodles, your favorite brand, and I would make three broths. We'd sous vide a bunch of chicken. So it was DIY noodles. Yeah, like, you would like bring your noodles, and we would like have the or broth BYOs. I yeah, BYO, say. yeah, yeah not BYO noodles. <laughs> um, or we could supply them to you, and then for, like five bucks a pop, we like build your own bowls, kind of. Which, in the weird way, is what we do at Genza, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> but not instant noodles, but um, of course, yeah. But you're no but, longer living in a dorm or yeah, operating out yeah. of a dorm. We, we started with this instant noodle thing, and then we just started doing, um, you know, like, tasting menus um, or cutsy things. We did, uh, for a semester, we did menus like the five stages of a relationship, and each of the stages was a course, you know. Like the type of stuff a sophomore would do in college. That's yeah, but it, again, like, it sort of goes back to, like, <laughs> you're so conceptual, conceptual about uh-huh. the way you plan your restaurants and see them like there's something that's just really challenging I think that maybe appeals to you like you don't think about like you think about food and Mm -hmm. like how you can connect it to like a larger concept that you're working with I suppose I think so a lot of um, people want me to 
a lot, a lot of people want me to have thought more than I did about the things that I've done. Um, I think uh, one surprising thing is because I didn't go to culinary school, a lot of people um, question uh, how somebody with a degree in cognitive science um, would end up in running kitchens at this age. Yeah. Um, and I don't have a good answer for it. You mm-hmm. know, um, I wish there was some wonderful way to tie in neuroscience and Wittgenstein or whatever we were reading into the food that we make today. But um, the fact of the matter is... Uh, just given the circumstance that we find ourselves in, I think this is the thing that makes the most sense to do. Um, I can't see the team of Junzi doing anything except for opening sort of contemporary Chinese restaurants. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine cooking food that isn't the food that we cook. There's a the, the, sort of the energy sometimes it feels necessary. Yeah. Yeah. But it's you know not surprising at all to hear that you were studying cognitive science <laughs> at Yale. Oh, thank you. While you were creating, like, high-level conceptual pop-up restaurants like on the weekend <laughs> yeah. in your spare right, time. Right, right. I mean, there's clearly yeah. like a connection. P- probably. We'll leave. Probably. It, we can leave it up to like a historian to like draw those one day. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, what made you want to leave Hong Kong and come to the United States in the first place? Um, that's what everyone did. Um, all okay. the good schools were in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, or the U.K. Um, most of us knew what we wanted to study um, or knew where we wanted to study. So um, I just ended up in New Haven, Connecticut. Well, that seems like a good place to land. Uh, it, yeah, it was It was a wonderful place to land. I was, think. was it, I mean, I don't know how you pictured it before you arrived in <laughs> New Haven, Connecticut, coming from Hong Kong, but right. was it similar to what you expected? Was it totally different than what you would have expected? Uh, there were a lot of different things. The first... Um, the first meal we had when uh, my father brought me to uh, school, freshman year, uh, we went to a Chinese restaurant. And this restaurant is now my favorite restaurant in New Haven, probably. Mm-hmm. But the first time we went, I was so disappointed. I was like, I can't believe I left Hong Kong for this. Yeah. I can't believe I'm never going to... The first time I cried, actually, freshman year, was on the phone when my dad told me that my favorite fishball noodle restaurant in Hong Kong was closed forever. Oh, so, you'll never uh, go there again. Yeah. yeah, and then meanwhile, um, the Constellation Prize is going downstairs to this place, that, the, the first restaurant that I went to after we went to New Haven, and it was just like, oh, this is just not what it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. But Because it was because Americanized it just wasn't, Chinese it was, food. It was sort of, yeah. But what I realized at this American Chinese restaurant is that we, we used to go every weekend and every time we were hungry, we just go downstairs and go to this restaurant. And we became regulars at this restaurant. You know, we met the owners and knew the owners and they knew who we were and they knew our orders. And just going over and over and over again and mining through the menu to figure out how to, you know, game the system sort mm-hmm. of to see what's the, what the good stuff is to figure out that you can add minced pork to the seafood chow fun mm. and like really elevating the experience. You know, and Cognitive the science. No, maybe it is. <laughs> it just feels like, I mean. You're like, if I switch this ingredient with this ingredient and now I have like a new dish. Absolutely. Like, um, yeah, that's one of my favorite restaurants in the world now. And I miss it a lot. I mean, I think that's so funny that it became eventually your favorite restaurant. And is it just because you think you developed like new feelings of comfort for it because it was just the place that was there that you went to yeah. over and over again? I think it's both of those things. Like it became this, like it filled a, a new role for Absolutely. you. Like you couldn't yeah. go to your favorite fishball yeah. place. So instead. It's habit forming. Right? Yeah, yeah. Ex- yeah. Like it just sort of yeah. became this addictive. This is now the place to go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Every night you went out, you would have to end up with the same um, seafood chow fun with mint pork. 
So when did you realize you were not going to become a cognitive scientist? And in fact, this like crazy hobby that you were pursuing <laughs> on the weekend was in fact leading to a career. Um, it got to a point when uh, you realize there's nothing else for you to do except for cook. Mm. It just doesn't. It just doesn't really feel right to do anything except for cook. Um, when I was in college, uh, I, I got more serious about cooking because on top of this sort of side project, why pop up on the weekends? I spent all my winters and my summers cooking in proper restaurants, um, primarily in Japan. The first year, I tasked myself with tr learning Japanese. So um, learning Japanese in Japan, spent all summer um, cooking exclusively with like Japanese grandmas. Everybody else's host families, mother and grandmother, I would like go to their you know uh, place and like cook with them and learn the food. Um, the second summer, I spent it backpacking. Um, I just had my knives, a couple of bandanas, and started in Tokyo. Worked a couple of weeks in Tokyo, and then just bounced around and hit every major city all the way down to Nagasaki, and tried to figure out what food I was most excited about in Japan. Um, of course, at that point, the theory is Japanese food is the best food in the world. So you go to the place that has the best food in the world to learn cuisine. Yeah. Um, and so I ended up working at a restaurant called Kikunoi Honte in Kyoto. And with the chef there, Murasan, he um, had this special visa for um, a foreign chef to learn um, very traditional kaiseki high-end um, Japanese cuisine with him. And so this is sort of like a world's 50 best, you know, yeah. three-star Michelin place. Um, and the hardest I've ever worked in my whole life was probably and Kikunoi. And that was the last summer. I stumbled upon that restaurant the second summer and the last summer. I said, I'm going to spend my summer here and learn from this guy. Um, and it was hard work and I was learning on Japanese cuisine. But towards the end of my stay there, um, I sat down with Murata-san and asked him, you know, how he got into cooking. Um, the restaurant was built by his father, but he kind of rebelled and told himself, I'm going to learn the best food in the world, which back in the day was French food. Right. So he went to France. He was cooking in France for about a couple months, and he realized, why, like, French food is great, but why don't I think more about the food that you know, I grew up with, that's mm -hmm. in my blood? And so he flew back to Japan and started running the restaurant with his father. Mm. And that's the moment when I kind of realized, oh, like, here I am in Japan, <laughs> learning the best food in the world. Um, perhaps I should begin thinking about Chinese food as well. And so that's when I started making staff meal for a lot of the staff. Um, and uh, we did, we had do side-by-side -side comparisons of Japanese mapo tofu and then Chinese mapo tofu, or a Japanese gyoza and then Chinese dumpling. Right. And then, then I found that there were sort of threads of uh, narrative that you could weave together. Um, just by cooking Chinese food and telling people about it. Even in the Japanese kitchen, they're making the highest level of Japanese food. So I um, came back um, from Japan that summer and thought to myself, perhaps perhaps I should get going on this Chinese food thing. <laughs> um, and that's when I met everybody else who's on the team for Junza and we started building this concept and said, this is, this is probably the way to go. This is what we have to do right now and we better get going. How much of that motivation, whether it was you know conscious or mm -hmm. not at the time, came from you just like, maybe really missing the food you grew up with? Some of it. Probably some of it. Um, what's curious is um, the food we serve at Jensa is northern Chinese food, um, which is the food that I cook a lot of these days. 
Um, but I'm from the south, so I had to learn a lot of this food, um, and which is which has been a helpful sort of journey for me too, because it's sort of like I have half of my foot in the door. I know Chinese food. I know some of the principles and how the physics of wok cooking, for example. But I don't know these specific flavors and these specific ingredients. So um, from there, I think I've been able to see from a perspective where a lot of our um, customers and a lot of our guests are, are too. They kind of know Chinese food, but they don't know this type of Chinese food. Um, so it, yeah, it's been a learning process. Because you like the challenge. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's it's certainly difficult. It's certainly difficult, and it's really worth um, it's worth talking about. I think it's worth thinking about at a larger scale. Yeah, we're gonna take a quick break, and then we are gonna talk about it more. Awesome. So stay tuned. We're here with Lucas Sin from Jinza Kitchen, and we're gonna hear from our sponsor, and then we'll be back. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to Food Without Borders on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I am your host, Sari Kamen, and I am in the studio with Chef Lucas Sin of Jinza Kitchen. Hey, Lucas. What's up? Welcome back. <laughs> um, so tell us about the mission of Jinza Kitchen. There's the... Um me, this is the rehearsed answer, and then there's the answer. I think um, it's kind of like Give deep us inside. Of, um, uh, well, broadly speaking, I think uh, a lot of Jun's mission is about translating. It's a it's a process of translating um, Chinese food for an American palate mm-hmm. in a sort of um, updated and uh, exciting way um, that is honest to um, what China is like in China, but also more importantly, honest to um, the team of the people who make the food and the people who run this restaurant. Um, broadly speaking, I think um, there Chinese food. Uh, there, there's a lot of Chinese food in the U.S. Yeah, everybody loves eating Chinese food, but it's for the amount of cultural heritage and years of culinary development that China has. Um, not a lot of it has made its way over to the U.S. There's not a lot of nuance. There's not a lot of nuance. It's a, it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing uh, how it came about, right? 
um, there is no headquarters in the middle of America where someone says, this is the orange chicken recipe. This is what <laughs> chow mein is going to be like. But every single American Chinese restaurant that you go to feels pretty much exactly the same. Give or take, right? Right. A lot of it is really similar. Isn't that just a product of immigration that happened like yeah, in the late is. 1800s? It's an immigration, so it's, a, it's an outward force that comes into the U.S., but it's also the network that's developed within the U.S. Um, of these immigrants. There's this sort of like diasporic network where people share recipes with, first it's your cousin and then it's this other sort of person that came into town that's opening a Chinese restaurant. Yeah, it's like a sub-Chinese yeah, it is. And it's, food c- and, culture. And, and it's so <laughs> wonderful. Um, uh, sort of, it's like ch- Chinese food has grown collectively as a cuisine in the U.S., but without sort of a brand or mm. um, a unified story. Because um, unlike uh, Mexican food, for example, where you do have some uh, more brand representation in the market space, so to speak, then you have better control over different types of uh, cuisine that are di- like a little bit more nuanced that you can bring to the board. Um, so I think uh, we were just... Um, I just cooked for... Um, Cecilia Chang who's the queen of Chinese food and her son Philip who is the founder of P.F. Chang's P.F. Chang's obviously is like you know the the Chinese food brand so it's Philip Philip's P.F. Chang and then it's Cecilia's or rather it's Philip's P.F. Chang and it's his mother's old sous chef's new restaurant Panda Inn that became Panda Express oh wow and so all of Chinese food comes sums to Cecilia and her restaurant the Mandarin in San Francisco that opened in the 60s. And uh, that's most of what, the, the, that's most of the companies that sort of like govern what Chinese food is. At They're scale. the brand headquarters. Yeah, that's the brand headquarters. <laughs> um, and they were built, you know, uh, 30, 40 years ago. And now there hasn't been really an update since then. And so I think a lot of our work at Genza is to corral the energy of uh, artists and designers. Um, architects, um, people in business development, and everywhere um, around a new Chinese food brand and a new Chinese food story. So when you were describing Mm -hmm. the typical American Chinese food Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. menu, you you said, like, oh, I love it. But it also seems like like you're working against that and you're trying to change the narrative. So what's the tension that exists? Like, it's the same thing, I guess, that happened with you eventually embracing the restaurant (laughs) in (laughs) New Haven. Like, how do you, uh, like, decipher that relationship you have where you're, like, fighting against something, but you also kind of love it? I see it less of um, pushing against uh, older narrative um, and more about adding new color Mm, um, to it. Um, I think... uh, Southern Chinese food, I mean, we can't even call, it's easy, the, the easy narrative you hear a lot is that American Chinese food really is just Southern Chinese food or Hunanese food. Um, it's a little sweet and sour, it's a tiny bit spicy, there's a lot of light soy sauce, it's a lot of cornstarch. Um, but that's not totally true. Um, it's evolved in and of itself. Um, and so American Chinese food has become its own category of Chinese food, the way we now see a lot of Sichuan restaurants. Sichuan restaurants are their own category of Chinese food. I think we're trying to add um, to the mix a new category of Chinese food, which is kind of like accessible um, contemporary Chinese food that you might be able to get in northern China. 
a lot of our flavors are sourced from the northeast, but I think a lot of the way we present the food is uh, a little more, it's a little bigger than just the northeast. Mm -hmm. By the northeast, I mean a lot of braises with soybean paste, um, a lot of soy use, um, no rice. That's a big part of it. Rice was only grown in the northeast, basically, after the Cultural Revolution. There's no rice at your restaurant? Uh, at our restaurant, no. Wow. Yeah. I don't uh, think I've ever been to a Chinese, Chinese restaurant, restaurant without rice. Yeah. But if you think about it, probably about 50% of the Chinese population didn't grow up with rice as the primary carbohydrate because hmm. it's all wheat, it's all flour. So it was noodles. So noodles, um, bings also. Bings being uh, sort of like Chinese flatbread type of thing. Mm -hmm. Ours is unleavened, so it doesn't have yeast in it, but it's just flour and water. Those are the two ingredients. There's no salt, there's no sugar. Um, noodles are the same thing. Um, if you wanted to take a trip back to ancient China and you looked at the first Chinese dictionary ever written, you would look at the definition for bing and it would say bing shi ye. Bing is food. Hmm. The reason is flour and water, you would have a dough. Um, you would take that dough, if you rolled it thin, you would get these bings, right? You would get these um, uh, wrap type of things. If you shaved that dough into water, that's your noodle. If you rolled it flat and put meat in the middle, that's dumpling. If you put something sweet in the middle, it could become something like dim sum. And so that really was the sort of like the main, uh, the main food of China for a very, very long time. Rice, compared to wheat, is a lot more difficult to grow. It requires not only a village, but probably a couple of them. Mm -hmm. So um, I think telling people that, oh, this is a Chinese restaurant, but we don't serve rice, mostly just flour and water, is a good starting point to start the conversation to say, a lot of the Chinese food that you know is just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. There's a lot more that we're trying to bring. Um, okay, so two questions. Mm -hmm. I mean, are people generally... How do they react when they find out there's no rice? And do they uh -huh. feel, like, excited or receptive? Or are they, like, where's the rice? Um, and then I guess my second question of that, too, is Jenza is fast casual. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So is that, um, I mean, is that a choice to create a place that can be, you know, more accessible and eventually you can open more and more places so it, mm -hmm. it could, I mean, I don't know, compete's not the right word, but um, it could become more ubiquitous like a panda express uh, ultimately so you uh -huh, could uh -huh. sort of like further the education that right. comes from being able yeah. to go to a place Absolutely. that's fast casual um to the first question um sorry i threw two at you no, 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 no. The, the first about, the first about um, whether people are surprised that we don't serve rice um what's weird is a lot of people who come to jinza don't think it's a chinese restaurant so they don't have that expectation even that there should be rice i mean do they realize it once they have completed their meal or they never um, know a lot of people in the, especially in the beginning didn't know they would mm -hmm. just come and eat and uh or, or they would come in oh this looks like a chinese fast casual place mm -hmm. so just get whatever this is and they wouldn't come to th think of them think oh it's rice um like where's the rice right uh and we actually get a lot of people who look at the um, way we've um, designed and decorated the restaurant. Like, oh, like nice little Japanese place. You know, like you get a lot of that oh, sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so to the second question, though, um, I think fast casual absolutely is a um, careful choice on our part. Um, the way we think about it, or the way I like to think about it, is um, in a lot of uh, innovation in the food space. Um, you can start with either the form or the content. So the structure of the content. And I think we've chosen first to try to change people's expectations and innovate in the content to change the flavors that people are used to um, in their sort of their like daily diet and their daily routines. Other salads and their tacos and their um, and the grain bowls and that sort of thing. Um, 
but for the form, we kind of um, try to keep it more accessible and similar to what people are used to, so people know how to order at the restaurant, so people know what to expect when they walk in, that they can customize, that they can um, get chicken today and get tofu the next day. Um, and that way, if we can bring the Chinese cuisine to a level of understanding that people wouldn't have to question themselves too much before they walk into the Chinese restaurant. You don't restaurant. want to make it too challenging. Yeah, you want like you don't want somebody to walk in before they walk into the Junzi. People shouldn't have to tell themselves, "I am about to have an ethnic experience, or rather, an authentic experience." Like they have to give themselves a pep talk right. or something. They they have to like <laughs> give themselves a pat on the back, saying, "You know, I went all the way out oh, to flushing, and now I'm eating on the styrofoam plate." Right. Like I did this. Like we're gonna go look for the best Chinese food. This is hey, this place is on the corner. Serve food. Um, the noodles are great. Maybe just have some of these. The things are good. Um, I'll come back tomorrow. And a couple of weeks later, they're like, wait, wait a second, like, what type of food is this? Oh, it's Chinese. Oh, cool, it's just Chinese. <laughs> right, so like the Chinese. authenticity is sort of like yeah. intrinsic to the experience, but you don't have to go out of your way to Absolutely. seek it. Yeah, I think that's, um, and as much as I wish that weren't the case, I think that's a huge barrier of entry for a lot of um, contemporary restaurants. I think that that's really smart. They have to like, yeah, it sucks that you have to, let's say as a um, Laotian restaurant, that you have to convince somebody that, this is worth trying right. before you walk in the door. Um, and it's crazy because there are, you know, what is it, 45, 46,000 Chinese restaurants? Um, I think that number we got from Mining Yelp <laughs> to see how many restaurants like, identify the Chinese. It's like 45, 46,000 Chinese restaurants, but still, um, most people will have to convince themselves that, okay, cool, Chinese restaurant is what I want today, and then I'm going to go get it. But yeah. that's not the case for, you know, like a salad bowl or something. Yeah, I mean, I saw something online. There was one story that, com or basically, not compared, but it, it suggested that uh, Junza Kitchen could be like the Chinese version of a sweet, a sweet green. green. And yeah. I wondered if you found that, like, if that was a compliment or you found that offensive. I, no, I absolutely think so. Um, yeah, I think um, sweet green speaks to a lot of um, our mission of accessibility mm -hmm. and um, uh, making things easy for people, but delivering a high quality product. Uh, in uh, sort of a comfortable space. I think um, Sweet Green, uh, just to name one of them, is one of the uh, key sort of innovators in this space. What's funny is um, uh, CEO of Sweet Green, uh, well, this piece came out in Vogue, mm -hmm. and uh, we got a call at the restaurant and said, hey, uh, so uh, I uh, read that you... Um, might be the Chinese sweet green. We should talk. And I was like, who is this other CEO of sweet green? <laughs> okay, I got it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, talk. Prank call. <laughs> yeah that's it. Um, yeah, but it's, I think that I really like that article because um, it really spoke to the, the things that we're trying to do. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so you're like, okay, this is. Yeah, this in, is in working. a fast casual sense, yeah, for sure. Right. Right. Um, like David Chang has done a lot to yeah. like maybe change the conversation right, right, about right. what Chinese food is or mm -hmm. places like Mission Chinese. But, you know, mm -hmm. if you don't live in New York and you can't afford a certain type of dining experience and it's just not accessible to Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, one of the silly things that we like to do at Jinza, though, is we start with a fast casual, but we actually like to build upwards as well um, to formats that are a little bit more refined. Um, I have a little bit of a pet project we call Chef's Table. Um, so once a month, um, we do a tasting menu at the fast casual restaurant during fast casual business hours. Mm. And we set the table, people are eating with forks and knives or chopsticks and nice porcelain plates and things. Um, but it's usually a collaboration either with another chef or another culture. And we look at how Chinese food interact with said chef or said culture. So 
Recently, we did a pretty interesting、um, Chinese Dominican dinner. That was really fun. We were looking at、uh, how Chinese populations or Chinese cooks were cooking for、uh, Dominican populations、uh, in the DR、mm. in Washington Heights. And、um, the the little bit of、uh, conversation that is in China itself,、um, we were comparing and contrasting the techniques and the ingredients, and、um, we found some pretty cool dishes、um, that you know speak to Chinese Dominican food. Nobody who came to the dinner thought they would be anything interesting about Chinese Dominican food, but I think with a sort of like persistent and thoughtful approach, you always end up with some sort of narrative, and you find something that's really cool that could bring those cultures together. So for these dinners、um, at chef's table,、um, with you know, it's a type of place with wine pairing and coursed food and such. I think that's a really good way for us to start examining other cultures and the way other people cook through the lens of Chinese food. Cognitive science. <laughs> <laughs>、um, well, that's a great segue to tell us if there's anything like new in the works,、mm-hmm. and also where we can find your restaurants and stay in touch and keep tabs on on Junza and whatever else is happening with you. Absolutely. Um, we have two restaurants、uh, in New York City,、um, one in New Haven.、Uh, the ones in New York City, the first is on 113 and Broadway by Columbia University, and the second is by NYU at 170 Bleecker and Bleecker and Sullivan.、Um, at both locations,、uh, we have a regular menu of bangs and noodles, and then at night、uh, we run an after-hours program, which is late night. You know, we throw the kind of like healthy, balanced. At the door, and you do fried chicken and cocktails and that sort of thing. Is that more of like a reservation kind of thing?、Uh, no, the after hours is、um, come as you come before you go out. Come, come as you are. Come, come as you are. Okay.、Um, and for chef's table,、um, currently it's semi-secret. Can't believe I <laughs> told <out> . everybody. <laughs>、um, but、uh, if you follow us on Instagram and send us a DM,、uh, Junza Kitchen, or me personally, Lucas Totson. Um, I can get you a seat. So slip into Lucas's DMs. Yes, is what he's please. saying. Absolutely. Okay, <laughs>、um, <laughs> Chef Lucas Sin. Thank you so much、thank、for coming、so、much. on Food Without Borders. It was really interesting and cool to, to hear about what you're working on and your journey. And I really appreciate you taking the time to be here. Thank you so much.、Um, go check out Junza Kitchen in either location, and maybe slip him a DM. If you're feeling saucy, please, <laughs>、um, and come back next week to hear more on Food Without Borders Wednesdays at 6 p.m. on HeritageRadioNetwork.org, as well as iTunes,、uh, Spotify, and Stitcher Radio. See you next week. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage_radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.